Uh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful um, that you have made your ways known to us, um, that you have revealed uh, your law, that you have revealed um, yourself supremely in the person of Jesus. And I pray that as we look into your word this morning, um, that your spirit would be at work um, illumining uh, your word to us and that we might be transformed um, by your spirit uh, bringing your word to life in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is how Psalm 103 uh, begins with a call to bless, that is to praise God. But what good is praising God? And and, and why is praise of God or, or this sort of blessing of God so central to Christianity? I mean, do we praise God only because uh, we should, like it's the, the right thing to do, or because he commands us to praise him? Um, is, it, is God sort of, as the neo-atheist uh, thinker Richard Dawkins puts it, sort of constantly insecure, needing to be reassured about how wonderful he really is? And when we think about our times gathered here together as a congregation on Sunday morning, we spend nearly half our time singing songs together, praising God. I mean, this is kind of an odd thing when you think about the rest of our lives. We don't come together in groups of people and start singing together, much less singing praises to God. And these songs about praising and, and this, the concept of praise, why do we praise God? These are, are questions that are central um, as we look at the Psalms, because the Psalms are full of praise. Um, they are shot through with calls to praise God, examples of praising God, commands to praise God. And the author, uh, C.S. Lewis, who had been a committed atheist um, after uh, going through World War I and, and becoming a professor at Oxford, as he was coming to faith, he wrestled deeply with these questions of what does it mean to praise God and, and how can God call us to praise himself? And he wrote in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, he said, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God and still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. And he says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue. And Lewis's response to this challenge, I can say, completely transformed how I think about what praise is, how I think about what worship is. And this is what he writes, and I want to share this with you in kind of an extended reading from from this section of Lewis's book on Reflection of the Psalms. He says, The most obvious fact about praising, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. He said, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. He said, I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, of wines and dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men are so spontaneously praised whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in praising them. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
And Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. I think we delight, Lewis writes, to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. You see, enjoyment overflows into praise. Praise can't help but invite others to join in the enjoyment. In fact, enjoyment isn't complete until it's expressed, until others are invited in. So, for example, when Rachel and I found out a few weeks ago, months ago, that she was pregnant, our joy wasn't complete until we could finally share that with others. And, and you did hear that right. You didn't hear it wrong. We are expecting our first baby. I think I've got a picture here. On December 3rd, so Lord willing, December 3rd, we'll have our first baby, and we're just thrilled. And, and our joy in that, our enjoyment of it, wasn't complete until we could share that with you, until we could share it with others. And I'm sure you've had this experience of, of reading a great book, or seeing a great film, or, or having just some great news, and, and if there's no one there to share it with, it's somehow diminished. You can't fully enjoy it until your enjoyment has been expressed and shared with others. You see, what Lewis realized... What the psalmist realized long before him, and what I hope that we'll realize together this morning as we look at Psalm 103, is that praising God and enjoying him are in the end the same thing. That praising God and enjoying him are in the end the very same thing. So the question for us as we look at Psalm 103 is how can we not praise this God? How can we not praise God. So as we explore Psalm 103 together this morning, we're going to see three things about praise. First, that praise is a choice. Second, that praise can't forget. And that third, praise is contagious. Praise is a choice. It can't forget. It is contagious. So first we see in verses one and two that praise is a choice. I mean, there's many times when praise does spontaneously overflow And it will come easily, but much of the time, perhaps most of the time, at least in my experience, praise of God in particular often involves a choice. It's sometimes a conscious decision to decide to praise God. And so that's how the psalm begins. The psalmist turns to his soul, and he begins almost preaching to his soul. He says, soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. But wait a second, what does it mean to bless? Again, we don't use this language of blessing often. And so blessing just means to praise. In fact, depending on the translation that you have, it may even say praise instead of bless in in the Bible you have. In other words, the psalmist is saying to himself, to his soul, to the very core of who he is, celebrate, enjoy the Lord, delight in him soul. But sometimes our souls, even when they kind of read a a great passage of scripture or see a great sunset or have some great news to celebrate, our soul's reaction is just kind of like, meh, I don't really want to praise. I'm not really, I'm either going to wallow sort of in my self-pity or just be content in my self-contentedness. And it's at those moments when we have to sort of take ourselves, take our soul by the shoulders and say, listen to me, soul, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. Look at me, soul. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Bless the Lord. Every one of our souls is in danger of forgetting who God is. And we have to say to our soul, soul, I know you. I know who I am, soul. I know who you are. And I know that you always tend to forget all that God has done for you. So remember who he is. Remember to praise him. 
You see, even back in the garden when sin entered the world, this, this was the problem. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and they began to forget who God really was and all that he had done for them and how much he loved them. You see, and now because we are all Adam and Eve's children, we all have sort of this awe amnesia. Our souls are inclined, they're predisposed to forget So David, the psalmist, he starts addressing his soul and he starts telling it, he says, do not forget the Lord's benefits. Don't forget all that he has done. And and it isn't just a, a sort of a literary device or a poetic device. He's actually preaching to his soul, saying, soul, don't forget all that God has done for you. So the question is for us is, is what causes us to forget? What causes you to forget? Is it Is it hardship? Sometimes probably stress, sure, uh, fear, uncertainty, probably. I think all of these things can cause us to forget how good God has been to us. But I was struck this week by what Moses, one of the leaders of God's people in the Old Testament, says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He warns the people, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full... And have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, Moses doesn't seem to think that the thing that is going to make Israel forget is hardship, but rather comfort, ease, success. He says when everything is going well, when you're finally in the land and you have the house that you want and your wealth is secure, in those moments, those are actually the parts of our lives when it's the easiest to forget. And it's not to say that those things are bad. Quite to the contrary, good house and wealth and all, those are very good things. In fact, they're so good that they actually have the possibility of beginning to compete with or even eclipse God in our lives. They're not bad. In fact, it's the very best things in our lives, the very best, the very most wonderful of God's gifts that usually are the things that run the most danger of eclipsing him in our lives. And it's true that hardship can also do this, but hardship often draws us closer to God. I mean, what, what, question, what is the question that, that even sort of non-religious people ask in light of a, of a tragedy like the tornadoes in Moore, Oklahoma? I mean, even people who don't really consider themselves religious in those moments, they start asking the question, how could God let something like this happen? You see, hardship often, even if it's out of anger, it turns the conversation toward God. However, when something amazing happens, it isn't quite the same, right? We, we don't look at the Dow Jones and see, man, it went to 15,000, and we're not like, oh God, how did you let this happen, right? I mean, I'm looking at my stocks and thinking, this is good, this is great, but my first reaction isn't, how God could you let this happen? We just don't think about God at all often. This is why praise is so often a choice, it's a decision. Because we tend to forget, we have to say to our souls, don't forget, praise is a discipline. In fact, today is Memorial Day. It's a day that we as a country have set aside to remember. Because we realize even as a country, as people, we recognize that that even the sacrifice of lives to defend a country is something that if we're not careful, we will forget so we've built structures into the life of our, of our national life together to remind us, to remember. 
So what are the memorial days in, in our lives? What are the structures? What are the things that we have in place in our own lives to help us remember, to help us not forget all that God has done for us? Maybe it's not only keeping a prayer list of things that we are asking God to provide and and help, but maybe it's keeping a a, a praise list, a blessing list of all the good things. I keep on my Evernote on my phone where I have my prayer list, I I keep a list of, of thanksgivings, of all the things that God has, all the answered prayer, all the things that God has provided. And when I begin to get discouraged, I just start looking back through there. A house, a vacation, a child. I mean, all of these things, all these answered prayers. What are the structures that you have in your life to not forget all that God has done for you? We must preach to ourselves, tell ourselves, remind ourselves of the truth about who God is and what he has done. We're always talking to ourselves. As Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because you, no one talks to you more than you do. So what are you saying to yourself about God? What are you saying to yourself about yourself? And what does the psalmist, David, say about God and himself? What are all the benefits that praise can't forget? Well, in verses 3 through 19, we see that praise cannot forget. And we see all the things that praise refuses to forget. David lists some of the massive benefits that come to God's people because of who he is and what he has done. Praise can't, praise won't let us forget because true true praise is full of content. It's full of truth. You see, our our, our praise can't be contentless and be all that meaningful. I mean, sure, it's great, you know, to tell your wife, uh, I love you as you're quickly running out the door on your way to work. And and it's great. It's an important part of, of caring for her. But if all you ever do is quickly say a quick I love you, At a certain point, that begins to ring hollow. If you never elaborate on why you love the person, why you care for them so deeply. Now, I I wouldn't necessarily know that from personal experience. Um, But I've heard, I've heard that this is true. If you you don't say it uh, and explain it, then, then it starts to become meaningless. And there's two categories of things that praise can't forget, and, and they are both beautifully captured in a John uh, Newton quote. Who, you know, he was the man who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, and he says in uh, the, the film, actually, about his life toward the end of the film, he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. He says, though my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. You see, praise remembers who we are, and praise remembers who God is. Remembers who we are, and it remembers who God is. David remembers in this psalm who he is. He remembers that he is a sinner, he's a rebel, that he's sick, that he's trapped in a pit, that he is as fragile as a flower and as impermanent as a blade of grass. And that's the background from from which David, from which all of us are coming from. But the foreground of this psalm, what's on front and center all throughout the psalm, is God, our great Savior. That's what's gloriously on display in Psalm 103. And I want to take a moment now just to go through these verses and just look at just a little bit at each one of these benefits that David highlights here. First, notice in verse 3 that he heals and he forgives. Don Carson writes, when David starts to enumerate all the benefits, he begins with forgiveness of sins. 
Here is a man who understands of what is greatest of importance. If we have everything but God's forgiveness, we have nothing. If we have everything but God's forgiveness, we have nothing. And this language of healing can sometimes refer literally to being physically healed, but oftentimes it's used as a metaphor to describe being sick with a disease of, of sin, of this debilitating um, sin that's crushing us. So as the ESV study Bible puts out, since healing is parallel with forgiveness, the metaphorical use may be intended here. Thus, iniquity is like diseases which weaken and corrupt. It is God's mercy that takes them away. And the picture is similar in verse 4, except this time sin isn't pictured as a disease, but rather as a pit. As people trapped by sin, we are like someone who is stuck in a pit with no way of escape. And in fact, most of the time, we don't even want out of the pit. We like it in the pit, and we just keep digging the pit deeper. And that's actually how sin makes us addicts. When you think about it, it says, if you just dig a little bit deeper into this pit, then you'll find what you're looking for. You're almost there. Just dig a little bit deeper, and then you'll find everything you hope for. But if you've been there, if you realize how deeply you are in the pit, the next shovel full of dirt, you're just further down in the pit. You're no closer to finding what you want to what your heart truly desires. That's the lie of sin. It says if you just keep digging a little bit deeper, you'll find what you're looking for. And in the end, you'll only just end up further and further down in the pit. More desperate. But God reaches down and grabs us out of the pit. He rescues us. He saves us. And he doesn't just pull us out of the pit and sort of set us on the edge with our legs dangling over into the pit. No, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't just rescue. He also restores. Those who were once marked by despair and hopelessness are now marked by unconditional love. And moreover, in verse 5, it says he satisfies us with good so that our strength is renewed like the eagles. And we, we never want to go back to the pit again. So we go from being in a pit to being like an eagle soaring far above the ground with that kind of strength. These verses focus on God's care and provision. He gives us all that we need. The eagle is an emblem of strength and vitality and youthfulness of speed and power. God doesn't just rescue, he also restores. How can we not praise this God? Next look at verse 6. He works justice for all who are oppressed. And the language of oppression there in verse 6 refers specifically to those who are politically or socially oppressed. You see, God will make things right. He will work justice. David has moved from this sort of individual experience of rescue to this more public justice that God works for all people. And next he celebrates God making himself known in verses 7 and 8. God is the gospel. God is the good news. And he's revealed himself to us. But who has he revealed himself to be? You see, the background of these verses is when Moses, this leader of God's people, back in the book of Exodus, he asked to see God's face. And it's kind of a crazy story. I'm not going to go into it now. If you've never read it, it's Exodus chapter 34. Um, Moses asks, can, can I see your face, God? And God ends up saying, no, I, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back. And in that moment, as God reveals sort of the backside of his glory to Moses, he reveals his name. He reveals his name to, to Moses. This name, this personal name, Yahweh which is translated the Lord. All throughout the the psalm, you'll notice the word Lord in sort of small caps in your Bible. And this indicates that it's translating God's personal name, Yahweh. 
In God's name, it captures what he's really like, who he really is, that is the core of his being. And how does he define it? When he says, this is my name, the Lord, the Lord, here's the definition. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. There are three main words used in Hebrew to describe God's love, and they're all present in verse 8. The first word translated merciful refers to the tender compassion of a mother for her child. God is like a mother with with a newborn child, this tender, this mercy, this compassion. The second word there in verse 8, translated gracious, describes God's incredible generosity and provision to all that he has made, to every single thing that he has made. And the third word translated steadfast love, and you see that phrase steadfast love or or everlasting love all over the psalm. It it translates the Hebrew word hesed, and it's the centerpiece of the psalm. It describes God's tenacious, unfailing, never ceasing, always pursuing love for his people. You get this picture in the book of Hosea where, where God's people are pictured as this wayward wife who has gone into this life of prostitution and Hosea redeems her out of this life of prostitution and loves her. The word throughout Hosea is hesed, this deep love that never gives up. It's always faithful. It's always seeking. That's how God loves us. How can we not praise this God? So what is this hesed, this loyal love of God, this key facet of of who God is? What does it do when it encounters those of us who as rebels, whose key facet of our lives is sin? Look at verses 9 through 12. First it says, he will not always chide. Isn't that meaningful? It means nothing to me. I I never use the word chide, right? So what does it mean? He says, he will not always chide. So this word chide, it, it actually, it's a hard word to translate, which is probably why you get chide. I don't know, I've never even chided, I don't know if I've chided someone before. But the picture of chiding is it's actually, it's a legal term. It's used for like a, in a law court of someone being at odds with you in court, of someone who has a lawsuit against you, who's bringing an, a, a, a complaint, an opposition against you in court. And so it says, God will always stand in opposition to you. He will not always have a case against you. He will not always be going after you, pursuing you in court. Not only does God not give us what our sins deserve, he drops the case against us altogether. One commentator put it this way, he says, God infinitely wronged, not only tempers wrath, but also tempers justice, though what it would cost him is only fully revealed in the New Testament. How can we not praise this God? The Lord's loyal love, his hesed, is beyond measure to those who fear him. That is, those in relationship with him, who know him, who love him. Verse 11 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, is how high is steadfast love. It's a picture of infinite abundance, of of overflowing, of never ceasing. That's how his hesed is. It's, It's like as high as the heavens from the earth, you can't even begin to fill that space, and yet his love is beyond that. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west in verse 12. You see, when God forgives you, it's, it's decisive, it's permanent. It's as far as the east is from the west. But, but some of you this morning, and, and I struggle with this, some of you this morning treat God's forgiveness as though he said he removed your sins as far as the north is from the south. You see, if you keep walking north long enough, you'll get to the North Pole, you'll cross the North Pole, and you end up, you go south. North and south meet at the North and South Poles, right? They meet. They're very far apart, but they do meet. 
And some of you have heard God's promises of forgiveness, but you're afraid that someday he still may use your sin against you. That he still may bring it up. That one day you will reach the North Pole and you'll cross over and there your sin will be waiting for you on the South Side. But he didn't say as far as the North is from the South. No, he said as far as the East is from the West. There is no East Pole. There is no West Pole. They never meet. You can walk East and keep walking and walking and walking around our planet and you will never start going West. Forgiveness of sin is permanent. It's as far as the east is from the west. It never meets. When God forgives you, that's how he forgives. Permanently. Decisively. How can we not praise this God? But it doesn't stop. Verses 13 through 14, God shows us compassion like a father. And this is the the metaphor of God as father is actually rare in the Old Testament. But you see, God doesn't treat us like enemies. He doesn't even treat us like slaves. He treats us like children. He treats us like, like his very own children who he loves, who he has made. He knows us completely and fully, and he looks for every reason, every opportunity to show forbearance and mercy towards us. I, I love how this verse expands this picture. It says, God knows us as a father because he knows our frame. It means he knows how we are made. He understands our weaknesses. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. It says he knows that we are dust. And that word dust, it's the exact same word in in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation account that reads like this in Genesis 2-7, then the Lord formed, that word formed is the same word as frame. He knows our frame. The Lord formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. You see, God knows you and loves you because he made you. He made you. He knows exactly your weaknesses. He knows exactly your frailties. And he loves you like a father loves his children. How can we not praise this God? Because God made us and knows us, he knows our weaknesses and he knows our frailties. And we see this in in verse 15. It says, life is fleeting and frail. It says, we are like grass, like a flower that's just there one day and the wind passes over and it's gone. And and we saw this vividly in more Oklahoma this week, right? In seconds, homes and schools, which seem so firm and immovable, are in an instant reduced to rubble. All of our lives, they're so fleeting, they're so impermanent. The wind passes over and it's gone. However, our great hope is this, that God's loyal love, his hesed, extends forever, forever, for everlasting to everlasting to those who keep his, his, his covenant in verses 17 to 18. Yes, life is freedom, life is frail, but God's love and care is forever and ever and he holds us secure in that love. You see, God's everlasting loyal love is our only hope. It's our only hope in the face of a, of a devastating uh, tornado like in Moore or the shootings in Newtown. God's loyal love that never ceases, that is the only place where we can find hope or refuge. Because you see, if you're a secularist, um, if you're coming from that perspective, that worldview, that, that after death, there is no future. It's just over at that point. It's just done. There's something about all of us, I think, that reacts viscerally against that and says that it can't be all that's there. If you're coming from more of an, an Eastern religious perspective, then at death, we, we don't necessarily cease to exist, but we lose all of our individuality. We just kind of get absorbed back into the all-soul, the, 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 
sort of the wheel of samsara. We're just absorbed back into this thing and we lose all individuality. We don't cease to exist, but we cease to exist in any meaningful way as us. And as Tim Keller points out, even religions that believe in the heavenly paradise consider it consolation for the loss and pain of this life and all the joys that might have been. He says the biblical view of things, though, is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but the restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, it will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. In other words, one day everything sad will come untrue, as J.R. Tolkien put it in The Lord of the Rings. One day some, all things sad will come untrue. It's because God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. Even though we are fleeting and, and frail. How can we not praise this God? And we can have confidence that this is coming, that this redemption, this restoration is coming because in verse 19 we see that God rules over all. He is on his throne and no one can stop his plan of redemption and restoration from being carried out. How can we not praise this God? How can we not praise this glorious God? In the final three verses of the psalm, we see that praise is contagious. You see, when God, in all of his glory and goodness, when we see him for who he truly is, we can't help but calling others to that enjoyment, that the praise as it spontaneously overflows in our enjoyment, that we, we call other people to, to enjoy it as well. So in light of everything that David has just listed in verses 3 through 19, he can't help now in these last three verses but to call all of creation to join him. He says, bless the Lord, O you, all you his angels, you mighty one who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of his hosts, his ministers who do as well. Bless the Lord, all of his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How can we not praise this God? Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her devotional book for children called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, she writes this. She says, the whole world sings a song. Have you heard it? The wind is whispering into the trees. The rain is dancing it on the rooftops. The whole of creation is singing it out together. God loves us. He made us. He's very pleased with us. It is the song that has been sung since the beginning. The song that God created everything in the world to sing. It is the song without words. And it is the song that you were created to sing too. She says, we forgot our song long ago. And we turned and ran from God. But Jesus has come to bring us home and to give us back our song. How can we not praise this God who has come to bring us home, to come to give us our song again, that we might sing, God made us, he loves us, he is very pleased with us. You know, we celebrate communion most weeks here at the Brookside campus as a tangible reminder because we tend to forget of all the good news that the gospel brings. That our sins have been forgiven by Jesus on the cross and all the vast implications of that. Communion is one of the ways that we force ourselves to remember. It's one of the structures that we have put in place as a congregation to say, we are not going to let our souls forget all that Jesus has done for us. That we make sure that we don't forget that all that God and Jesus by the Spirit has done. 
You see, in communion, we taste and touch and see the good news of the gospel. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, if he is your Lord, your Savior, if you love him, you are welcome at his table. Um, and of course, you're always uh, welcome to remain seated. No one ever has to come forward. Um, you're welcome to remain in your seat. And when you do come, just gather in groups of five or six around the communion table, take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then all partake together. And there are four communion stations around the room. There's two up front here, and then there's two in the back. In this communion station in the back, there's gluten-free communion elements available as well. And uh, when you go to receive communion, it works best if you kind of go out these side aisles and then return back through the middle aisle. And if you're a guest with us, you've probably noticed these pews are pretty uh, narrow. And so if you have to kind of climb over someone or kind of bump into someone a little bit as you slide past someone, we're used to that. It's okay. Um, no one will, will think that's weird if you kind of uh, have to put a hand on a shoulder or kind of bump to get by someone. So take your time. Enjoy this moment of remembrance. You see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, don't forget. Well, before we come to the communion table, let's pause and pray. Jesus, you have forgiven our every rebellion. Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, by the wounds of you, our suffering servant, we are healed. We praise you. Jesus, you who were highly exalted in the heavens, you descended to the lower parts of the earth to redeem our life from the pit. We praise you. Though you were the king of all, you became nothing that you might crown us with steadfast love and mercy. We praise you. You came, Jesus, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Father, we, we give praise to you. Jesus, you're merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. We praise you. Jesus, you have canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross. We praise you. Jesus, though we are like the flowers of the field, we know that you care for us, therefore we are anxious about nothing. We praise you. Jesus, though we have failed a thousand times to keep your covenant, you have established a new covenant in your blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We praise you. Jesus, you are the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Honor and glory be to you forever and ever, we praise you. Jesus, around your throne, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, say with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them praise you, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Come now to the Lord's table and remember all his benefits.